phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back. Floyd here from Federation Radio. And today we're going over an episode called Dagger of the Mind, which is a... Ooh, you thought the last episode had important messages in it. This episode is all about the prison system, which, I've got to be honest, in Star Trek has always been something of a bit of an enigma. They don't really talk about it very often. I actually forgot this episode existed. This is one of the few episodes where we get to actually go to a penal colony and see sort of what the idea was. Unfortunately, it's in the original series, so... I don't know how much of this carries forward to how the penal colonies are supposed to work later, but it's an interesting concept and a bit of a look-in on what even the more progressive types like the Star Trek writers of the 60s thought about prison systems, which, ooh, it's pretty scary. So, uh, this episode goes over... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happens. So, at the first, we see Kirk and... Kirk going into the transporter room. The transporter guys are struggling. They can't work out why something's not transporting. Kirk reminds them this is a penal colony. They have a planetary shield. You cannot tele you cannot transport, teleport, transport, whatever, through it unless you contact them. So he contacts them and they lower it and then they send it through and then they receive a big box. Now, this big box is actually filled with a prisoner rather than the materials like it says on the box. So... One thing that we realize straight away is that this guy is not in his right mind because the box arrives. Not long after, we see the box opening. Now, the two transporter guys are paying zero attention. They're looking down at their consoles. They're doing their job really quickly. I don't know, filing reports or whatever the hell they do after they transport goods up, probably filing it into their logistics system. But they basically haven't checked the box yet. Now, this dude very quietly opens the box. We learn later this guy is named Simon Von Geller, or Van Geller, and he is a doctor. Now, at this point, we don't realize that, and we are under the impression that he is a patient or a prisoner, however you want to put it. He attempts to basically take over the ship. He manages to knock out the transporter crew. He steals one of their uniforms, so he looks like an engineer. He does get recognized in the hall as, like, something weird. Kirk gets contacted by the penal colony that says there's a possibility he was in that box. After a little bit, Kirk gets the message that the transporter team is unconscious, and he's like, yep, make that a definite, he is here. And then he comes onto the bridge, knocks out the security guard in front of the lift, and holds the phaser, aiming towards Kirk, asking for asylum. Now, Kirk basically says, you can't ask for asylum at gunpoint. And then a sneaky move from Spock and a quick move from Kirk and they manage to disarm the guy, take his weapon, and then they send him to the med bay. Now very quickly, it becomes apparent that this man is not well. Now at first you'd be forgiven for thinking he's mentally ill like this. It's a penal colony. It could also be a mental asylum. We don't know what this guy's history is. And uh, he's acting real erratic. He starts telling one story, then another. He's covered in sweat. He's... You know, he's just not well. This is a man who's really not coping. He's under high strain, anxiety, he's lashing out. He's strapped to the bed right now, so he can't actually hit anyone, but he's, like, fully moving around. You, you can tell if he wasn't strapped down, he'd be beating the doctor. But, throughout all of that, the doctor manages to get a few little bits of information out of him. 
and he claims that Dr. Dr. Adams, who runs the facility, he doesn't quite say he's evil, but he says do not trust the Doctor. The Doctor is lying, the Doctor destroys, the Doctor alters the mind, and all of this, mind you, is in between. Like, he says Dr. Adams, don't trust him, and then he starts laughing and talks about something else and insults the Doctor or insults the Captain, and then goes back to don't trust him, he has a room or there's a machine, and he's going back and forth, and... I think Kirk kind of writes him off as being insane and doesn't really pay any attention. He, he even says to Bones, not my problem. This is not our problem. We're going to turn around and take him back. Now, Dr. McCoy, or Bones, says that this is a fascinating man that he'd like to talk to a bit more. He would love to study this man as a doctor. Now, again, he's overruled, but McCoy does end up coming onto the bridge a bit before we get to the penal colony after presumably spending more time with the patient. And he says to the captain, I'm sorry to do this to you, captain, but my medical log is going to say that we shouldn't send this patient back. I want a formal investigation into what's happened to him and how he ended up in this state. And I'm sorry, captain, I know you disagree, but once my medical log is filed, and it will be filed with that question, you have to answer that question in your log. And he sort of looks at his captain and says, sorry, Jim. Like, it's not a personal thing, but he's like, I know you don't believe me or you don't feel the same way, but absolutely I do, and I'm not letting this go. Because he's a good doctor. And sometimes doctors have to do things like that to their command to make them listen. So Kirk contacts the penal colony and basically says, we're going to have to launch an investigation. I'm sorry, we're going to come down and have a look. So he basically turns to the Dr. McCoy and says, I think it's a little bit of a personal, like, you're making me do this, so I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of coming because you're biased. And he says, send me a doctor with expertise in psychology, if you can find one on board, and we will, and I will go down with them. So, you know, McCoy does. This is, I was actually talking in the last episode, I think, about the fact that it's weird that we never get to see all the other doctors and the people that these heads of departments are supposed to be the head of doing their job. Now, in this episode, we do. We get Dr. Helen. Uh, I think it does say her last name, but I don't remember now. But Helen, they call her for most of the episode. Helen shows up. Now, Helen, McCoy says very sarcastically with a bit of a smile, he's like, Helen is not only a psychologist, but she also has a history in peniology, which is apparently, I had to look up that word, apparently it is the study of prison systems both mentally what it does to the patients, but also, like, they're the types of people who try and come up with new designs for prisons and ideas for new rooms and trying to work through the mental side of things on how we can rehabilitate people best in the prison system. Which, you know, not a field that I've ever met anyone that was in, but a, a pretty decent field, I imagine. That is an important role that you don't often think of that somebody has to do. But believe it or not, on the Starship, for whatever reason, there is a psychologist with exactly what we need. So she's going to be going, Dr. Helen. Dr. Helen and Kirk seem to have a bit of a history. They're sort of vague about it. We get that they danced at a Christmas party once. And she saw it's a bit awkward between them. So I'm not sure if that means that he slept with her and never spoke to her again or what exactly it's supposed to suggest. But there's a history there. Kirk's a little bit awkward about it, and so is she, but they decide to stay professional and do their job. Now, they go down to the planet, and almost immediately, at least I got a weird feeling from Dr. Adams, the guy, that the administrator. He's too cocky. He's too happy. He's offering them drinks, saying how good it is to have visitors here. We get to meet one of his assistants, who apparently used to be a patient here, or a resident here, so a prisoner. 
he did something to her, and now she's walking around almost like a zombie. She's very flat, no personality. She kind of just walks in and goes, I enjoy my work. Very monotone, like she may as well be an android. And that immediately, even into Kirk, who up until this point, I think, kind of didn't care about McCoy's, you know, worries. He was kind of like, oh, well, we'll just, I'll go investigate because he's making me. But I don't think Kirk cared too much until this point. This was the point where I think even Kirk started to have a couple alarm bells like, um, something's weird about that. So he continues his investigation. And as they're walking through the facility, there's a room. With a bit of a machine in there that Dr. Adams kind of waves away with a wave of his hand and says, Oh, it was an experimental machine that I, I think we're going to dis disassemble it. I don't really see much progress happening with that one. And he tries to dismiss the room, but Kirk immediately is like, Yeah, it's weird how clean that room is. And these people are acting very weird and flat. And that woman's not the only one. There's another guy that we meet there. I forget if they gave him a name or not, but he's acting flat too. And... Kirk starts to suspect, I think, that that machine is a part of it, because that's why Dr. Adams is trying to wave them away from it. He doesn't want them to look at it too closely. And Kirk, being the good captain he is, recognises that and says, I think I'd like to stay the night and uh, do a little more investigating of the place. Now, Dr. Adams is perfectly happy to have Helen and Kirk stay there for the night. Now, mind you, at this point, Helen kind of leans towards Dr. Adams. She's quite happy to go along with anything he says. From what Kirk and her have said, he seems to be somewhat of a brilliant man who has reformed all the prison systems across the Federation, which, you know, admirable, but also shady. So at night, Kirk sort of shows up in Helen's quarters. At first, I thought it was going to be like a personal thing, like he's trying to hit on her or explain something to her, but no. He comes in, fully professional, and says, what did you think of that machine? What did you think of the people around here? <laughs> and she sort of says to him, like, the middle of the night, Captain. Couldn't you ask me this in the morning? He says, yes, I could have, but I'm asking you now. <laughs> in the very Captain, I need an answer right now kind of authority that they always seem to have. So they end up determining that they want to go look at this machine again. So they sneak out of their room. Well, they don't sneak out. It seems like they have free reign to sort of explore if they want, but it's night time and they don't inform anyone of where they're going. They go straight to this room and Kirk says, I'm going to sit in the machine you have the expertise to run the machine. Are you certain you can do this without harming me? She says, yes. So he says, let's test this machine and see if it really is no good. Because he gets a message from Spock a little before this. And Spock's hesitant to talk with Dr. Adams in the room with Kirk until, Kirk, um, until Dr. Adams leaves. Then Spock says, I have been working with Van Geller up here and going over his files. Van Geller is a doctor. He was assigned there to assist Dr. Adams. He's a, he's a smart man, his ID records, all that sort of stuff that was in the ship's log shows that he has a pretty good career, there's nothing wrong with this man, he showed no signs of being insane before this, and he says, I'm concerned, Captain, about what's going on down there, which is what sparked Kirk's, I guess, middle of the night, I want to go have a look. So Kirk sits in this machine, and it kind of looks like a torture chamber, almost, but the only thing in the room is like a big couch... Think of it kind of like a dentist chair. It's a very medical chair. It lays right back. It looks towards the roof. Kirk lays in it, and on the other side of a bit of glass, Dr. Helen is there. Now, he says to her, run it for a few seconds, and then turn it off, and we'll see what happens. So she does. She turns it on, and Kirk kind of goes blank-faced, staring towards this, like, glowing green light on the roof that's, like, flashing. And then it turns off after, like, two or three seconds. 
And he sort of turns his head through the glass to look at Dr. Helen and says, Well, are you going to do the test? He says, Captain, I already did. <laughs> and that sort of, that hints that there's something else going on here. This is not just altering the mental memories or whatever the doctor said before about it. This is not a slight alteration. This is not the equivalent of an antidepressant in a machine. This is, something else is going on here. And for a machine, even Kirk says, for a machine that, uh, they were going to disassemble, and he claims as a failure, it seems to work pretty well. So he says, alright, give me a slight suggestion. So they go through the suggestion, she turns it back on, Kirk looks blank, and she says, you are feeling very hungry, and then she turns it off. Kirk immediately makes a comment, second the machine's off, that when they're out of here, that when they finish here, he wants to raid a kitchen, because he's hungry. So then... They go, alright, let's. that worked really well, especially, again, for a machine that was about to be disassembled. They're like, let's try one more test, just to be certain. Because at this point, even Dr. Helen, who had been fully on Adam's side this whole time about the machine being innocent and everything here being innocent, you can tell at this point she's like, um, she's getting really concerned. Like, this is basically a brainwashing machine. You can blank their minds and then give them suggestions and they'll follow it completely. This is a very dangerous piece of technology. So, they go to use it again, except Dr. Adam shows up, throws Helen to the side with one of his guards, or one of his patients that's like blank-faced or whatever, and immediately turns the machine up heaps. He turns it up, I think, to like half volume, which starts to really hurt Kirk. Like, oh, before they were just doing a little bit, it was like level one, a bit of suggestion, now they turn it up to like level six, and Kirk's like staring at the roof. Going blank, he's trying to find it, but he can't. His brain is just being attacked mentally. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. He's staring at this light, and he's just struggling to hold himself. Dr. Adams then starts asking, like, trying to tell the captain through the machine, like, landing the suggestion, you trust me, you trust this facility, you want to go back and say how much of a good job I'm doing. Start trying to, you know, get Kirk to basically back off and go back and file a report stating that everything is fine. Except Kirk's a very stubborn man with a very strong will. He manages to sort of resist for a fair while. Eventually, they take him off the machine and they throw him back in his room. Now it's more of a cell. It's still the same room, but there's guards at the door, and he's in there with Dr. Helen, who is, like, patting his head and trying to, like, help calm him, wiping the sweat away, trying to look after him. Probably because she feels bad about the fact that she got thrown to the side and he got tortured and there was nothing she could do about it. Now, at this point... They're supposed to be checking in with the ship every four hours. Now, obviously, because Dr. Adams has caught them, he's not lowering the shield to allow them to actually communicate with the ship. So, we get a quick scene from Spock on the ship, who cannot contact the captain on any channel. He does a quick mind meld, and I think this is the first time we see a mind meld. It's like a telepathic power that Vulcans have, where they touch their brain. Normally they say, my mind to your mind. This one was a little different. He kind of went on about a meditation technique and how you could feel the ocean and something like that but then he said our minds are one so like similar similar it's just a very this is obviously the first incarnation of the mind meld and they hadn't quite got down how they wanted it to work yet but it's pretty close like this this is very recognizable and similar to all the mind melds you'll see in the future I'm not saying they use this all the time but it is something that comes up particularly with vulcan characters quite often with Spock, and later on with a man named Tuvok, who we'll talk about much later on, a long time from now. But, um, so yeah, he can't contact them, he's getting worried, he's basically got the security team standing by, ready to go, because he's ready to go rescue the captain, but again, the shield's up, they can't transport through. 
So he's in the transporter room trying to help them get through. And then it goes back to the planet, because that's all Spock can do for now. They have no way of going to the planet. So back on the planet, you've got Kirk and the Doctor, Hallen, and Kirk gets dragged away again. Except before he does, he tells Dr. Hallen they managed to pull off a panel on the wall, and he tells Hallen to go through the vents towards the engineering room and turn off the power for this place so that the shields will go down, knowing full well that it's past the four-hour point, and Spock will probably either transport them back up or transport down with the security team almost immediately upon the shield falling, because he trusts his, you know, science officer to do things like that. Now... Dr. Hallen climbs through the vents, Kirk pretends that the machine has worked better than it really did and pretends to be all compliant, walks up to the door when Dr. Adams shows up and says, let's go, time for the machine, yes sir. You know, mostly trying not to let them in the room so they wouldn't notice Dr. Hallen isn't in the room, she's in the vents. Now, they take him to the machine, Kirk pretends, I mean the machine is affecting him but he pretends it's affecting him more, he sits there with a blank face doesn't quite answer the questions, just sort of complies, gives Dr. Adams what he wants, says, Yes, Doctor. Of course I'll listen to you, Doctor. Of course nothing you're doing is bad, Doctor. You're innocent. You know, just allowing him. He's just allowing the Doctor to think he's winning. Because Kirk's brilliant like that. And um, the problem is, halfway through this, someone goes to check on Dr. Helen. They realize she's not in the room. And when Dr. Adams finds out about that, he turns the machine up to max and we see Kirk basically on the ground like he tries to get off the machine he tries to get out his communicator and contact spock probably because he's you know his brain is being attacked he's not quite himself right now he knows on a very deep level he needs help and he's trying to contact the ship for help but he's also being attacked and he's falling to the ground he's physically like he doesn't give up he continues to get through the torture and dr adams makes a comment about vangella the man up in med bay on the ship about how when he turned it up to this point, Vangela was on the ground sobbing and begging for it to stop, and how privileged he was to be able to use... Sorry, Dr. Adam says how privileged he was to be able to use the machine on such strong minds like this, and how happy he was about it. But at this point, Dr. Helen arrives where she needed to go, turns the machine off, which immediately allows Kirk to get up. He knocks out the two people in the room, you know, including Dr. Adams, and tries to escape. Now, at the same time, the power goes down, and Spock arrives with the security team, starts throwing, you know, we see the security team basically come down, throwing people against the wall, and just locking the place down, because their captain has been taken prisoner, and that's what you do, you go in hard to rescue your captain. Now, what people, what everyone forgot at this point was, um, Dr. Adams was knocked out on the floor in that room. No one else was there. Kirk left him on the floor as he tried to escape. He ran into Spock, and by the time, presumably, they had rounded everyone up and described what had happened and found Dr. Helen and, you know, done all of that, they'd sort of forgotten he was in there. The machine was still running. The only reason it stopped was because the power went off, but when the power was restored during their, you know, locking the facility down, it turned back on, and presumably Dr. Adams sat there under the machine for... Who knows how long? We're not really given a time frame. It could have been a few minutes. It might have been 20 minutes, half an hour. We're not really sure. But he's staring into the machine, blank by himself. And they determine that he dies of loneliness. Because when you're staring into the machine, you feel nothing. You feel alone. You have no memories. You don't remember your family. You don't remember your friends. You remember nothing. You are just a blank slate. And the human brain is, you know, as much as, you know, I'm an introvert, I'm autistic, I am as introverted as a human being can probably be. 
And even I recognize that you need some social interaction. I can't imagine having nothing and not remembering anyone. I at least have my thoughts and my memories when I'm alone. This guy was on the floor with nothing. He was a blank slate for who knows how long. And as Kirk's... You know, the Dr. McCoy says to Kirk at the end on the bridge, like, it's hard to believe a man could just die of loneliness like that. And Kirk sort of says without turning his face, he keeps staring forward, says, yes, well, you haven't sat in the chair. I can understand how the man might die. And that's... That's an interesting one, because, like, extreme loneliness, I mean, study after study shows most people do not cope well with loneliness. Like, at this point, there's a lot of discussion about whether solitary confinement in prisons should even be used, or whether that should be considered state-mandated torture, because solitary confinement is torture. You can send a prisoner in there who's only in prison for a minor crime. If you leave him in solitary confinement for even a couple of days... It could mentally affect them for the rest of their life. They may not recover. They develop all sorts of problems. Humans do not cope well with that. Now, the more introverted you are, perhaps the more autistic you are like me, you'd probably last a bit longer. Like, I could probably do a few days in solitary confinement without any long-term problems. But a couple of days. I've read stories of people being in there for months. I would not cope for months. I think I'd hit probably about a week, and that would be... I'd say my willpower would be weakening. I'd be getting real antsy. And um, this machine takes away, like I said, your memories, your ability to move, your ability to think, any urges that you might have. So you can't even work out. You can't even do push-ups. You're just staring at this light. You're a blank slate. I can't imagine the level of torture that must be. But yeah, he dies. I mean, I can't say he didn't deserve it. Any man that would torture people and wipe their brains like that is not a man that really deserves anybody's envy. I mean, let him die. But probably not that way. As much as I would advocate him for the death penalty, not in that way. That's just a cruel way to go. But yeah, it's a it's a really interesting take on on the prison system because Star Trek has these penal colonies. They mention them a fair bit. The penal colony here, the penal colony there. Later on, we'll hear a little bit about the penal colony in New Zealand. I, I don't know why. It's one of the few things New Zealand ever gets brought up for, because like I've said before, Earth very rarely comes up in Star Trek, and when it does, it's usually little bits and pieces. We don't learn much. So New Zealand comes up a lot because apparently there is a penal colony there for whatever reason. It's really interesting because a lot of Star Trek likes to make out like Earth is a utopia. There is no crime. Humans are evolved. They're a bit different. Although... I will say that idea of evolved humans is more of a later thing. At this point, it's more just we've moved past bigotry and all that sort of stuff, and we're more just an equal society, but it's still very much a 1960s show, and there's a lot of things about it that, yeah, while it's a good idea, they haven't quite grasped that concept yet. Penal colonies in themselves, kind of, to me, are a failing of society. Like, some people are unique, some people are different. Some, you know, there is a minority, there are actual psychopaths, there are people that are, a very small minority of people are born and just inherently will be violent and will be dangerous. It's unfortunate, maybe one day there'll be genetic things or other things we can do to help those people, but right now, unfortunately, they do have to go to prison. There's just no safe place for them in society, and society is not safe when they're there. The problem is, they are a real minority and a lot of behaviours that aren't from that sort of stuff are considered to be like that, and they get thrown in prison for all sorts of things. I mean, in Australia, we don't have private prisons, as far as I'm aware, which, thank Christ, because private prisons are just... 
you're taking torture and you're privatizing it for profit. Like that's, I can't think of anything more immoral in the world right now than private prisons. Um, except certain prison camps in certain other countries that we would rather not talk about. But uh, let's just say you all know what kind of camps I'm talking about. Those camps are obviously, I don't think anybody in their right mind could question those camps are wrong. But private prisons, a lot of people turn their eyes the other way. They don't care about that. Um, there's something very disgusting to me about imprisoning a person. And sometimes it's not for much. Sometimes it's like they have a little bit of drugs in their pocket. So they get thrown in prison for like years and in a private prison, who knows? Like, there are private prisons owned by companies like Nestle, where you will work for a few cents an hour, and you're... You know, I really struggle to find the difference between the private prison system and slavery, quite frankly. Like, paying, paying them so far below the minimum wage per hour, not giving them a choice whether they want to work or not, and keeping them in a cell because of minor infrictions or because of sometimes outright just wrong policies. Sometimes it's just unlucky. You get a cop in a bad mood or a judge in a bad mood and you get the maximum sentence and then you're a slave, essentially. You're a state-sponsored slave, which is utterly disgusting to me. Now, in Australia, we don't really have that, but our prison system, like most countries, it's not the best. They call it prison and rehabilitation, but it's really not. The prison system is just about punishment. There's very little actual rehabilitation that goes on or even attempts for it. And it's kind of, you know, in the 21st century, century the prison system is honestly just disgusting. I, I don't know how else to say it. It needs reform. The problem is that much like this show showed with Kirk, not my problem. That's someone else's problem. That attitude from Kirk is an attitude that most of society holds. When you talk about the prison system or the problems with it, most people's eyes just kind of glaze over because in their mind every prisoner is a psycho. Every prisoner is there and deserves what they get. And it's like, well, not always. A lot of people are in prison for very minor things. And because the prison system is so bad, they end up in prison for years because they get years added to their sentence. Sometimes they get beaten by a guard, and then that guard might not want to admit that they beat them, so they'll claim that they were attacked, and they acted in self-defense. So now, because that prisoner has attacked a guard on his record, he might get another five years added. And incidents like this happen all the time. They attack each other, gangs in prisons cause these sorts of things, where the whole room will say, yes, he attacked me. Even though it's very much they attacked him, and then he'll get years to his sentence, and then you end up as this state-sponsored slave for... who knows? Some people their whole life. And what it does to you mentally and physically is just horrible. People go into prison sometimes for very minor things and they come out as just broken humans who will never function again in society. Which unfortunately means they'll probably end up back in prison because they're a broken person and we just don't have the systems in place to help them. And, you know, this is a very 1960s view on it. Like, the very... These days there's a little more awareness about this stuff. It's not complete, like I said, most people's eyes glaze over. No politician really wants to discuss it or try and change it. And any prisoner who, or someone that's been through the system that tries to talk about it is just told that they're a, you know, they're a criminal. Shouldn't have committed the crime if you can't do the time, you know. They get those sorts of things. Even though some of these people do reform and they come out and very much want to change. They want to help people. A lot of them come out with stories of meeting people in there who were very kind people. They, sometimes it's petty theft. People still go to prison for stealing food to try and feed their family when they're poor. You know, stealing is a crime, but if you're starving, you know, the law kind of seems insignificant. You need to eat. There are certain needs, and, you know, sometimes they end up in prison for minor things like that and then mentally get destroyed by it. 
And it's really unfair. And this, you know, in the 60s, obviously it was worse. People were far less caring about these sorts of things and far less aware because before the internet, mainstream media got to control the narrative and politicians and, well, as I've said before, the lives that come from those two crowds, if your world perception's coming from them, then your world perception is pretty damn warped and not very real. Luckily, the internet's a tool today that lets us see what's actually happening, lets us connect with each other and lets us share these sorts of things, which has led to a lot of change. Now, lots more needs to be done, but I am pretty confident, you know, it might happen. This idea of a better Star Trek future where we'll change and get past all these problems is, I think, through the internet going to happen. It's just slow. It's very slow. It could probably take another century of humans changing our ways and altering things and generations dying off that had their childhood beliefs and then new generations coming into the world with new beliefs, changing things and doing things differently. But yeah, it's interesting. Like, Star Trek, again, it's sending you a message. It's showing you the prison system. It's showing you problems with these types of places. And it's showing you that sometimes not caring or saying it's someone else's problem is just not good enough. Like, they showed that in the episode with Kirk at the start. Not his problem. But very quickly when he went and looked at it and he got an idea of what was actually happening... He made it his problem. He could have gone back to the ship after the first few minutes. He could have had one quick meeting with the doctor and said, all right, I'm satisfied, everything's fine. That should be enough to satisfy my doctor. I'm going back to the ship. And he could have just sent down Vangela and not cared. But once he saw it, it opened his eyes and he couldn't walk away. He had to deal with it because he is a good person. He was just ignorant. Not all people who ignore these problems are bad. Sometimes they're just ignorant or don't want to look or haven't had to look yet. You know, so again, Star Trek giving you good messages, bringing a bit of awareness to certain things, and showing you that sometimes just because someone seems like they don't care doesn't mean they can't make a difference. Now, you know, other than all that very heavy stuff that we just talked about, because that was a very heavy thing I didn't intend to go through, but um, honestly, there's a couple little notes I made, like little interesting things about this episode. So <laughs> Spock made a very interesting comment that I liked. Because I'm a big advocate of how hypocritical we are as a human race. We There's a lot of things about our modern society that are just so hypocritical. And Spock points it out beautifully in this quote where he says, Your people have glorified violence for 40 centuries, but you also imprison those who employ it privately. And man, what a beautiful description of humanity. You know, that's a perfect Spock is meant to be half alien... I've always tried to imagine what an alien race would do or what they would think about the way humans act if they came to Earth today and saw how we were. I've always tried to imagine, like, say it was a Federation ship. Let's take it from a Star Trek lens. Let's say the Enterprise showed up at Earth and they saw our society today. How do you think Kirk and Spock and all that would react to the way we do things and the way things are happening today? Like, I, I enjoy those types of thoughts and... Honestly, it's depressing because I try and look at it through a sci-fi lens and I'm like, we would look like barbarians. <laughs> we would look like backwards barbarians that just allow all sorts of crimes against humanity to happen on a daily matter. And we all walk around either committing those crimes, being victims of them, or, like the majority, like Kirk at the start of the episode, simply walking around going, not my problem. Let someone else's problem. We would look like utter barbarians to any alien race that was looking at the Earth. 
you know, which which is where the modern meme has come from. This is why aliens won't talk to us, because there's a common belief that, you know, UFOs and stuff are real. They probably are aliens looking at the Earth, and they probably feel exactly like what I just said, that this is a planet full of barbarians. Let's just avoid them for our own safety. They're not spacefaring yet. Let's just ignore them, because they're dangerous. Possibly, they might even be trying to stop us becoming spacefaring because, well, we're outright dangerous. I wouldn't let... If I found a planet... Like, if humans found a planet of aliens acting exactly the way humans did, we would probably go out of our way to kneecap all of their space industries using our own because we would recognize the danger if they hit space and started competing with and endangering us. I don't see why aliens would feel any differently about us. But yeah... Glorifying violence for 40 centuries but imprisoning those who employ it privately is just a perfect quote. It's one of those great quotes from Star Trek. And there are a lot of great quotes from Star Trek, but that's one of the early ones that I really like. Now, Kirk also makes a comment that penal colonies are just... They've been reformed. They're not cages. They're not prisons. They're clean hospitals for the sick-minded. Which, that to me is a very, again, 1960s attitude. Someone's only a criminal and they're not acting normal, you know, normal in brackets, because everyone apparently is just normal. Individuality, showing any thought that is different from the group norm in the 60s was like, what's wrong with you? What are you, a goddamn hippie? Like, get back in line. Like, that was, was pre-Vietnam. This was before the era of make love, not war. This was, those protests hadn't even happened yet. When this show was on the air... Well, actually, when this show was on the air, those protests, I think, were starting, but the attitude the general public had was, you know, do as you're told. Your government's always in the right. You should always follow authority. Do what your church and what your government tells you. Otherwise, you're criminally sick and you're ill in the mind. You know, like, if I had been born in the 60s, I probably would have been raised in a mental institution because I had autism. Because as a child, I would have acted and seemed a bit different. They probably would have locked me up somewhere. My brother, who was severely autistic, absolutely would have been locked up somewhere. Hell, a lot of people today would still like to lock him up somewhere. And, um, you know, I find this, you know, maybe I take this stuff a little more personally because of that. But, like, I am related to a lot of people. I have, just off the top of my head, three of my cousins are also autistic. You know, other mental illnesses, I've been around a lot of them. I've worked in a psych ward before. I've seen all this stuff. There are people all around you. You would be surprised if you looked around in your private life how many people are probably mentally ill or have some form of something like autism. There's a lot of people around with it. Not everyone is normal. In fact, the internet is kind of proving that most people aren't normal and the idea that they were is mostly just propaganda. It's all nonsense. Most people are not normal. Most people, in their own way, are weird. We are all strange in our own way. Some people dance in their kitchen, some sing in the shower... Some, like me, like to pace. I like to pace and overthink things. I'll pace up and down. My house has a huge, long hallway in the middle, and I walk back and forth in that hallway half the day, thinking about things, going over things. When I read, I don't sit still. I walk back and forth. That's just how I am. It's how I think. It's how I do things. But, you know, in the 60s, as Kirk said, I would have been sent to a hospital for the sick-minded. Because that used to be the view, that anyone who was different to the norm was wrong. Whereas these days, we're a little more open to individuality. You know, there, there are limits. You, you can't harm others. You cannot just walk into an airport yelling bomb. You can't go into a hospital dressed as a... I don't know. You know what I mean. There are certain limits. You, you can't just do whatever the hell you feel. 
Society still has to function in some way, but there's a lot more wiggle room for individuality now. Like, tattoos in the 60s were like, unless it was a tribal thing or a cultural thing, it was seen as disgusting. Like, you're just a lowlife, you're a gangster. Now everyone's got tattoos. Now, like, I don't know what the actual stats are, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's now a vast majority of people, like far over 60%, have a tattoo. Or have piercings like it is just normal now to express yourself in different ways because that's just the world we live in now and that's awesome i hope personally that we see more of that but um all right so what else was this so i also took a note of the central bureau of penology on earth apparently it's in stockholm sweden kirk mentioned that so which that gives me a little bit of hope because i don't know what it was like in the 60s but in the modern day denmark and sweden are held up as paragons as far as prison systems go they have the most humane ones in the world they have the lowest rate of reincarnations no i think that's the wrong word <laughs> reincarcerations reincarnations a whole different thing <laughs> but uh reincarcerate so like in america and australia like i said the prison system is harsh it damages you which means that statistically, if you go to prison and you come out after your sentence is over, there's a very, very high chance you're going to end up back in there. Whereas in Sweden and Denmark, where they focus a lot more rehabilitation in these state-of-the-art prisons, where there's a lot more psychology and education stuff in there, there's a hell of a lot less people that go to prison end up going back. There's also less stigma over there about going to prison. Because prison's not seen as a punishment for the criminally ill or the sick-minded over there. It's seen as a... You made a mistake. You need help. You know, that is society's way of helping you. And most people, when they come out of those prisons, they have received the help they need. They've received the guidance. It's not, you know, if you go for a job over there after being in prison, you're not just seen as an ex-con like you are over here. Like, you go to prison, you're basically going to have to work for yourself for the rest of your life because no one will give you a chance. But over there, it's not the case. So it's interesting, like... In the 60s, there was a very different view on prisons. Unfortunately, that view is still held by a majority even in the West now. But it's changing. More and more awareness through the internet of what the prison system's actually like is leading to change. It's incremental and it's slow, but it will eventually lead to real change. But anyway, next week we're going to be doing an episode called The Corbinite Maneuver. I'm sorry, not next week. Tomorrow, because this is day five of my seven-day special. Tomorrow is day six, where we'll be doing the Corbinite Maneuver, an episode where we get to meet a species from the First Federation. And it's not the First Federation, as in the one that you know from Star Trek as the second. It's a different species. I don't want to spoil it anymore, but oddly, it's an episode that I have always remembered. Even years later, I always remembered the Corbinite Maneuver. It's just a very memorable episode. Maybe it's the, the visuals, but we'll go over that next week. Thanks for coming by, I'm glad to hear you all listened, I hope you enjoyed, and I will see you all tomorrow.